Welcome to Enriched Menopause, where perimenopausal and menopausal women can learn what's going on with their bodies and how to thrive during this stage and beyond. You are not crazy and you are not alone. I'm Dr. Jessica Rich. Let's do this together. Hello and welcome back to Enriched Menopause. I've got an amazing guest with me here today. I've got Dr. Carolina Cueldo, who is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility expert. And I know for some of you, of course, this podcast, we're covering perimenopause and postmenopause. So for some of you, the idea of infertility or pregnancy is something that's past or not something you're worried about anymore. But I would encourage all of you to listen, because even if this isn't something that affects you, it's probably something that's affecting your friend or family member. Or of course, those of you in perimenopause, this may be a concern. So give a listen, because it might be something you can pass on to someone else. So Carolina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually really excited to be here today because, you know, I think there's everyone thinks infertility specialist. Oh, she's just trying to build families. But really, we also train as hormone specialists. And I think a lot of times women just really need to understand their biology, their bodies. And what does this mean? Not just for family building, but living your best life in that perimenopausal years. Mm-hmm, exactly. So that big long title that I gave for her at the beginning, that reproductive <laughs> endocrinology, that's the hormone part of things. It's not just infertility, although that tends to get a little bit more of the spotlight. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. I'm born and raised in Central California. And at the age of 15, my parents decided that we were going to be moving to South America. So my parents are originally from Argentina mm-hmm. and they really wanted their kids to experience their culture. So we moved down there. We moved to Buenos Aires when I was 15. I did high school. I did medical school there and I really wanted to stay. <laughs> and That's they a big were like, change well, from California. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge change, but I had a ball. It was just, it was so fun. You know, I was surrounded by family. I had lots of friends. It was just a beautiful, beautiful experience. I'm so grateful for it. And then I came back and I did my OBGYN residency in California. And then I matched to infertility at the University of Connecticut. So I was there from 2012 to 2015, and I actually practiced in South Florida for three years. It was my first Mm -hmm. job out of training, and then moved back to California to work with my father. So that's where I've been since September of 2018. And really, the reason that I originally got into women's health is because I was very, I felt very strongly about female empowerment and just really empowering women with knowledge about their fertility, knowledge about their bodies, and not just about pregnancy per se, but just reproduction in general. And then once I was in training and I got to see what happens in the IVF lab, I mean, I just fell in love. For for the medical nerd in me, it was just mind-blowing. And what they get to do every day is really just, it's a miracle. So thankfully, I'm in a job that I love, that I'm super passionate about, and, and I really enjoy getting up and going to work every day. That's awesome. And you and I are definitely on that same page and the loving to empower women and to yes. you know help people with information about their bodies so that they can make good choices for themselves. So let's start with the sort of infertility side of things, because of course, yeah. I was just listening to you on a podcast the other day talking about how one in four female physicians yeah. experience infertility, which was, was shocking to me, but it makes sense because of course, 
whether you're a physician or another professional, or a lot of women are delaying their childbearing either for school or for work reasons, or sometimes for illness, or sometimes just because maybe you haven't, you know, met that partner until later in life. So talk to us a little bit about how fertility changes with age and and what we need to know about that. If there's one message that I could convey to your listeners with this episode, it's the concept of ovarian aging and the biological clock. And it's not to instill fear, but it's to instill information. You know, in medicine, we talk a lot about informed consent. And so I feel really strongly that if women knew this information when they were younger, that would allow them to really take charge and be proactive with the options and opportunities that are out there and available today. So as women, something that's important to understand, we are born with all the eggs we're going to have in our lifetime. And we lose those eggs progressively and continually as we age. So basically, until about the age of 35, we know that egg quantity and egg quality stays fairly stable. So when you look at the likelihood of pregnancy, risk of miscarriage, et cetera, they tend to stay about the same until about age 35. And then above age 35 until about age 40, so over the course of those five years, we begin to see a slow but real decline in the number of the eggs that we're working with and the health of those eggs. And then after age 40, that decline becomes much more dramatic. So each passing year, the changes are much more significant. I always tell my patients, it's not that something magical happens on your birthday. Of course, everything that we're talking about is a continuum, but it is important from a research study standpoint and from a patient counseling standpoint that we identify these markers or these benchmarks so that people can have a better understanding versus talking in sort of these gray abstract unknowns. You're right. It's that continuum and that chance. So it isn't that people don't get pregnant later. I had my last baby right before I turned 40. That chance sort of decreases. I remember I just was speaking to a patient last week who was dealing with an illness that they wanted to be in a study and couldn't get pregnant for like four years while they were in this study. And she was in her late 30s at the time, and she was wondering, like, okay, can I wait four years to get pregnant? Right. And I don't remember exactly, but it was something like her chances at her current age were like 67% to get pregnant in a year. And then if she waited the four years, it was like 1% to 2% or something ridiculous. So talk with us a little bit about, you know, with perimenopause starting for some people in their mid-30s, like, what are those sort of probabilities or possibilities of getting pregnant um, into the mid-30s and, and into the 40s? For a young, fertile, healthy female, we typically quote a chance of pregnancy about 20% per month around the age of 35. So up and until age 35. And then we begin to see slow decline. It's not, it's not dramatic yet. But around age 40, those numbers decline to about 5% per month. So we do see that there is a change. It's not that you can't get pregnant. It's not that, you know, the shop closes, but the likelihood of pregnancy goes down significantly. And not only that, the risk of miscarriage increases. So when we talk about risk of miscarriage, we'll typically quote somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12% risk of miscarriage at a patient who's 35 or younger. That same patient, if she's 40 and getting pregnant, her risk of miscarriage is around 40%. 
And again, that goes back to the health of the egg that's being produced in a 40-year-old patient. So I completely agree. This is definitely a continuum, and this is definitely not absolute or all-or-none thinking. I think all of us know that woman who got pregnant at 43, at 45, at 47. But I think it's important is, you know, what happens to the majority? What happens to the other 99%, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where these statistics can be helpful and come into play. As you said, it's really important, I think, for women in general to know that and to have some ideas of their strategies and plans. Of course, there are many other factors that go into that. But I have so many of my patients who come to me either when they're turning 30 or when they're turning 35 or 40. It's always at those sort of like milestone birthdays. And they want me to kind of check their fertility. You know, basically what they're looking for is like, is there some test that you can do that tells me how long I have or what I need to do? So can you talk to that a little bit? In today's medical world, we are fortunate to have the ability to test a woman's ovarian reserve. And and what I mean by that is the number of eggs or the egg quantity, okay? And there's there's a couple different tests that we do. One that's become pretty popular and and a lot of people may have heard of is called AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. And that's a blood test, can be drawn anytime. And most people use the marker of one. So over one is theoretically good and under one is theoretically low. Now, as a fertility specialist, I will say there's actually a whole nomogram based on age. And so depending on your age really is what AMH is normal. So an AMH of one in a 40-year-old could be really good, but in a 20-year-old could actually be really low. So there is some interpretation that has to go along with that hormone level. But there are two really, really important caveats that people need to understand when we're checking ovarian reserve. The first is that ovarian reserve does not predict pregnancy. And there's actually a fairly good number of studies out there now confirming this. So we know that it is a good marker for egg quantity or ovarian activity, but actually is not a good predictor for the likelihood of that woman to become pregnant in the future. So I have women with great ovarian reserve who then go on to struggle with infertility. I have women with great ovarian reserve who get pregnant, no problem. And vice versa, I'll have somebody with a low egg reserve who then goes on to get pregnant, no problem. So it's really not a good marker for pregnancy. And the second thing that's super important to know about egg reserve testing is that it does not test quality. So quality is still predicated on age. And so if I have an older patient, even though her egg reserve might be really, really good for her age, we know that quality is still going to be a factor when we're talking about treatment options. So to those patients that are asking to test their fertility, I think there is some benefit to that. I think, you know, when we talk about empowering, informing, providing education, knowing your egg reserve may guide you in terms of your decision making. So, you know, if you're 30 and you find out you have a low egg reserve, that might prompt you to consider pregnancy sooner rather than later. You know, if you're I don't know, 34 and you have good egg reserve, you might consider egg freezing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it it can help in terms of some of the patients counseling or maybe her thoughts might change based on her numbers or whatnot. But it's important to understand these two things because you don't want to just act reflexively. You want to make sure that you're being thoughtful about these numbers and that you're talking to a specialist about, you know, what is the best case in your particular situation. Thank you. I really appreciate you talking about those caveats because I think this is a conversation I have a lot. And and my understanding from my training, at least, is that 
ovarian reserve is really best at predicting how successful IVF will be if somebody's going through that treatment, not necessarily how how their chances are for a spontaneous pregnancy. Is that right? Correct. So we say that it is a good predictor of response to the stimulation meds for fertility. So absolutely, I would agree with that. You know, I do say, especially in a world where, as you mentioned earlier, women are delaying their childbearing longer and longer, and in a world where egg freezing is now a possibility. So for those that don't know, ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, took the label of experimental off of egg freezing in 2012. So it really was not that long ago. I was just starting my fellowship about 10 years where this has really become standard of care and, and a reasonable, valid, you know, viable option for women that they didn't have before. And so I do think particularly for women between the age of 30, 35, I think, you know, at that point, most of us know if we want to have a family, most of us are hopefully in a financial place to consider egg freezing because remember, it's not covered by insurance. And so it's out of pocket for patients. And so I think there is some value to saying, okay, well, maybe I'll check my egg reserve. Maybe that'll help me in terms of, you know, should I start saving for egg freezing? Should I, can I continue waiting? So there is some utility, I do think, in the ovarian reserve just from a planning or logistical standpoint. But I certainly would not say that it's a predictor of pregnancy. I'm glad you brought up egg freezing because that's another conversation I have with with my patients all the time. Usually somebody somewhere 30 to 35, sometimes later than that, they want to know about egg freezing. They've heard about it. I find that most times it's a little bit more involved than they thought from what they've heard on in media or from friends. So tell us a little bit about what's involved in that process. Yeah. So, you know, I always say I I love that Hollywood has brought this to the table and made this sort of tabletop dinner conversation. Unfortunately, it's a double-edged sword. So the downside to that is I think sometimes there's unrealistic views or unrealistic expectations about what fertility treatment can offer or can do. So just talking about sort of what is egg freezing, the idea is that you are using eggs that you would have otherwise lost. And I think this is a question that comes up a lot. You're not using your eggs up faster. You're not going to go into menopause faster. Typically, every month, there's a cohort or a group of eggs that are sitting in the ovaries. And of that group, one gets selected out to go on to ovulate. And so what we do with IVF or what we do with egg freezing is we recruit from that group or from that cohort. So we are dependent on the woman's egg reserve in terms of the number of eggs they can expect to get. And so we stimulate those eggs. That involves daily injections, typically for about a week and a half, eight to 10 days. And over the course of that week and a half, we're monitoring very intensely with blood work and vaginal ultrasound monitoring. And at the end of that eight to 10 days, we plan for the egg extraction or egg retrieval procedure. And that procedure, we do consider it a surgical intervention. It's generally done under some anesthesia. It's not general anesthesia. It's called conscious sedation. We do it transvaginally. We're putting a needle into the pelvis. So I always tell patients, you definitely don't want to be awake for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> nope. You can't work. You can't drive. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely is something that you have to be committed to. You know, and I joke that for those two weeks, I am your best friend because you're in the office so much, but it is, it's a two week process. So if you can carve out those two weeks, then I think it's definitely something worth exploring. 
The data on egg freezing is fairly good at this point. Um, it actually started in Italy and then migrated over to the U.S. And really what we saw is around 2010, the lab techniques changed and the way that we froze eggs and embryos changed. And that's where it now became standard of care because the eggs survived the freezing and thawing process much better than they used to. So typical egg survival rates right now are somewhere in the 80 to 85% ballpark. So if you freeze 10 eggs, expect that when you go to use them, about seven to eight of them will survive, hopefully more, but that's kind of average numbers across the board. And the idea is that Again, coming back to egg quality, coming back to that biological clock. So for women who are 35 and under, that is really the best time with regards to egg quality and quantity, of course, but egg quality. And so if we can freeze those eggs and then you come back to us at, let's say, 40, 42, 44, you've been trying for six or 12 months and you've been unsuccessful, then you have the option of creating embryos using those younger eggs from when you were under 35. And then the likelihood of pregnancy, the chance of success will be much greater because we're now using, you know, 30 or 34 year old eggs. We're not using 44 year old eggs. So the quality and the quantity is going to be much more optimal. Like with everything, there is a caveat there. I always tell people, consider egg freezing an insurance policy, not a guarantee, because anything can happen, right? What happens if the eggs don't survive the thaw? Or we know that implanting an embryo is not a guaranteed pregnancy. So what happens if you use all the eggs and there was no pregnancy generated? So even though egg freezing, I am, you know, extremely, I feel very strongly about it. I'm passionate about it. I've actually done it myself in my early 30s. So it's something that I definitely want women to know about as an option, but the message is definitely not everybody go freeze your eggs. <laughs> it's really like, this is one more tool in the toolkit. And once you have been thoughtful and planned out sort of your, what your family building journey could look like, it's something to take into consideration. Back when I was in my training more than 10 years ago now, at that time, I remember embryo freezing was so much more successful. But my understanding is that egg freezing is, has come such a long way that they're pretty similar now. Is that correct? Correct. So pre-2010, 2012, we were actually encouraging. So a, a classic example was a single woman who was diagnosed with some sort of cancer and was going to have to undergo chemo radiation. She wanted to preserve her fertility. And so we would actually encourage those women to consider fertilizing the eggs with donor sperm and freeze embryos instead of eggs because the eggs just did not survive well with the slow freezing technique. Now, post-2012, the survival rates are so, so much higher that even in our married women, we are asking them to consider freezing eggs instead of embryos because when you freeze eggs, there's only one owner. And there have been some pretty high-profile cases of dispute of the use of those embryos when you have you know, a falling out or a divorce or, you know, insert whatever conflict. And because the documents are signed in a fertility clinic, those are not legally binding. Then it has to go through a court proceeding and the, the, the outcome may not be in the favor of what the patient or the partner wanted. So from that standpoint today, egg freezing does have the benefit in the sense that it's cleaner, it's simpler. There's one owner. There's no question about who those eggs belong to. All right. You heard that, ladies. Have have your own ownership of your own eggs and you don't need to know whose sperm you want to uh, fertilize them yet. <laughs> exactly. 
what can women do to increase their chances of becoming pregnant in perimenopause? Aside from egg freezing so that they have the younger eggs, you know, what are some other things that women can do to kind of increase their chances? Let me start that answer with general health is reproductive health. So if your general health is poor, your reproductive health is likely being impacted. So what we see is that as women age and as sort of, you know, life stressors occur and different things happen and potentially hormones change or metabolism changes, we begin to see the appearance of chronic diseases, things like high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, insert the problem. So really the number one thing women can do is lifestyle optimization. And my patients joke about hashtag optimization because I'm always talking about that, but it's true. A lot of times when patients come to me, they've been trying for, you know, at least six months, but some patients have been trying for two or three years. The first thing I'm going to ask, what is your weight? How's your sleep? What life stressors do you have going on right now? That is the first piece of the treatment plan that we're going to be talking about. So if that's something that they can address and optimize at the start of their journey, then they're going to be set up for even further success by the time they need to see a fertility specialist. And I think that's why a lot of people do better too when they do a little bit more of a holistic approach, when they're looking at things like acupuncture and yoga and stress reduction in general. And then that often comes along with better choices of what you're eating and putting in your body and avoiding more of the toxic habits like alcohol and smoking and caffeine and all of these things and, and also more, you know, good, healthy movement for the body. So I love that. I mean, both of us are Western medicine trained and, you know, we're very much educated to, you know, you, you find the disease, you diagnose the disease, you treat the disease. But I think that focusing on wellness and focusing on how can I improve my lifestyle? And this is something I've been exposed to more so in the last, I would say like year to year and a half and has really changed the way that I counsel patients. You and I were talking about this recently, the article that was published in the Journal of Psychiatry showing that regular meditation was actually equivalent to Zoloft in the treatment of anxiety. And so I think in Western medicine, we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of the power of these different interventions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as a colleague of ours says, meditation is free. It's literally, you need your quiet space, you need your breath and, and maybe some calming music and that's it, you know? So I think we underestimate a lot of times these simple interventions. But let's say somebody's doing all the right things, lifestyle, they didn't freeze their eggs, they're getting into that sort of like perimenopausal stage, and they're just not getting pregnant on their own. So what can you do for them at that stage? So my biggest message to those women is don't wait. I know a lot of times people want to try naturally. I know they want to give it sort of the good college try, but I strongly encourage, you know, see a specialist as quickly as possible, get the testing as quickly as possible. Even if then you decide, okay, now that we know everything's okay, we want to try for three to six months, but at least knowing that you've checked all those boxes and there's no glaring block tubes or no sperm or, you know, something that's quite obvious and that's going to impede your fertility journey. So that would be my first message is don't wait get tested. And then assuming the testing is normal, then you can figure out, okay, do I want to try on my own for a few months or do I want to go straight to treatment? And then the second thing I would say is, you know, as far as optimizing, we really want to talk about 
timing intercourse appropriately. Sometimes women are told, well, just have sex every other day or just, you know, have sex daily around the time of your ovulation or whatnot. And I think easier said than done, especially when you're trying to build your family, sex can become very medicalized, very a chore, if you will, very mechanical. Mm -hmm. And so I think really focusing and honing in on ovulation time. And so the use of an ovulation predictor kit, those are found, you know, in the feminine hygiene aisle, any big box store, any local pharmacy, they're urine strips. So just like you would take a pregnancy test, it's the exact same thing, but you're testing for ovulation. And then the other thing is knowing your cycle length. Do I have regular monthly 28-day cycles, 24-day cycles, 32-day cycles? The important thing is that they're predictable and consistent. So for example, 28 days is the classic teaching. And so 28 minus two weeks, so you're going to be ovulating around day 14. But if you have a 35-day cycle every month, then 35 minus two weeks, you're going to be ovulating closer to cycle day 21. And so based on knowing your cycle length, whatever that number is, minus two weeks, that's approximately the day you're going to be ovulating. So you can know when to test for ovulation. You want to have intercourse the day of the positive and the day after. Those two days, those are baby making sex. The rest of the month, <laughs> the rest of the month is about intimacy and connection. Now, if the ovulation predictor kit or OPK, because um, we love our acronyms in medicine, <laughs> if the OPK is not working for you, you don't get a consistent positive or your cycle length is unpredictable. One month, it's 21. The next month, it's 32, et cetera. So you don't have a way to time it. Then you need to get seen sooner because there could be an issue with ovulation or something that needs to be explored and you may consider treatment sooner. So I think that the important things are number one, don't wait. So early and then proactive, active intervention if the ovulation predictor kit is not working for you. And then beyond that, I would say if you've been trying for six months and you're not, you've not been successful, then it's time to get seen and get treated. And, you know, a lot of times patients don't understand. They'll say, well, if all the testing's negative, why do I need to do fertility treatment? And what we know is that pregnancy rates decline over time. So the longer you've been trying, the lower your chances are. And so really the goal of fertility treatment in the setting of a negative workup is not to correct a problem, but to boost your chances per month. And so that that's the important message with regards to treatment, particularly in older women. We don't want them to wait. We want them to get in sooner. And I would also just add a little bit to that, the, the trying part, because trying doesn't always necessarily just mean like, since you've wanted to become pregnant. I have so many women that I see, particularly yes. because I see a lot of pelvic pain and endometriosis, women who haven't really been trying, but they've been having unprotected sex for eight years and they haven't gotten pregnant. Yes. And that's a huge red flag to me that, you know, something's yes. going on and that you're going to need help a little sooner. So yes, maybe somebody who's 23 and is just starting to try can, you know, try for a year or so, and that's normal. But if you're in that perimenopause and menopause time, if you're 30, mid thirties, or even early thirties, and you've been trying for six months and something's not right, or your periods are unpredictable or your periods are painful, then seeing somebody sooner rather than later is going to be a better option for you. Absolutely. Okay, so they come in to see you. They've got all the work up. Maybe you found something and corrected it. Maybe not. Is IVF the only step from there, or or what? Are you, what are their options? You know, I think the important thing to understand is that each case needs to be individualized. So, generally speaking, the way I counsel patients is we will talk about a three armed approach to treatment. So, one we touched on earlier, which is the lifestyle component. 
Two is there may be supplements that are recommended to try and just enhance what we're doing. And then three is going to be the actual medical treatment. And when you break down medical treatment, generally speaking, medical treatment involves fertility meds for the female patient. Those fertility meds can be oral, injectable, or a combination of both. And then you're going to combine that with either timed intercourse, IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination or artificial insemination. And the way I explain that to patients is think of like a pap smear visit where we're inserting a speculum and we're using just a very tiny catheter to deposit the sperm inside the uterus. And then the third option would be IVF. And within IVF, you have a whole gamut of options. It's like just a whole spectrum of options. So you can do standard IVF. So your eggs, his sperm, create embryos, put them back. You can do that, but add in genetic testing. And then you have a whole branch within IVF called third-party reproduction, where we consider sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, so egg and sperm from somebody else combined, and then gestational surrogacy. And I personally, as a fertility specialist, always like to also introduce the idea of adoption, even though that's not something that I take care of specifically. I do want to make sure we're discussing all options on the table when we're navigating this journey. I think that's so important. There are so many different ways to have a family. And I know sometimes people can feel like if it doesn't happen in the way that they thought they were supposed to or that the way that their friend or family member did, that there's somehow a failure there. But I think if you want a family and you get to a family, any way that you get there, I think is a success in my opinion. So I'm glad you go over all of those options. One other thing I strongly recommend, especially if you're somebody who has seen a specialist and who's maybe been counseled about considering third party, I think it's so important to add fertility counseling with someone who's trained in the fertility world. Because, you know, the way I talk to patients is all of us grow up avoiding pregnancy, being told how to use birth control or use condoms or how to be, you know, responsible, be safe, et cetera, et cetera. And so most of us have never really had to navigate the thought processes that come up when doing the traditional, you know, my eggs, my uterus, you know, his sperm, if there's a male partner involved, when it doesn't happen that way, we've never really had to explore that. So how do I feel about sperm donation? How do I feel about surrogacy? And, you know, these are questions most of us have never even considered. And so there is going to be some processing and digesting. And the important thing is there's not one right answer, right? Like for some people, egg donation or embryo donation is just not an option. For other people, it absolutely is. And I think everybody's sort of thoughts and feelings around that are going to differ. And so it's really important that you explore and navigate that, particularly if you're being, you know, encouraged to consider that. Well, Carolina, thank you so much. You've given us so much information. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything else that you wish women around perimenopause knew? Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. This was so fun. And I really hope your listeners take away from this something useful. You know, if there's one message that I I want women to get from, from me, from us, from today, is really being a self-advocate and really being proactive. I think a lot of times we as women, especially the way we're socialized, is, you know, we wait for the doctor to bring it up or we wait because nobody ever told us we should see a fertility specialist. And so I really think engaging in the process, you know, asking questions, making sure you have a good rapport with your doc and that you feel comfortable asking those questions. I think that's just going to set patients up for the best success. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely in this field and, and basically in every other part of your health too. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's good, solid advice. Well, wonderful. Dr. Carolina Sueldo, thank you so much. Tell everybody who's listening out there and who says like, I need a doctor just like her. Where can they find you? I am across uh, most social channels. I'm probably most active on Instagram, um, but I also have a Facebook page and I have a YouTube channel. Every week I'm dropping just quick, you know, five to 10 minute education videos on fertility and all things reproduction. And they're all the same name. So Dr. Carolina Sueldo, I tried to keep it simple and easy. And yeah, I would love to hear if you listen to this episode and you want to reach out to me, shoot me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear what you thought. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and share with someone in your life who may benefit from this too. Remember that while I am a doctor, this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for informational purposes only. Talk with your doctor about what may apply to you and your health. We'll see you on the next episode of Enriched Menopause.